And just like that, we're back. If you're listening to this podcast in real time, then you know that we have been on a bit of a hiatus. This is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that has walked to the sixth canto of Purgatorio. I'm Mark Scarborough, your intrepid guide, I hope, to these difficult passages. And we have come to a spectacularly difficult canto, Canto 6, one of my Oh, dare I say it, least favorite cantos in all of comedy. I'm going to try to learn to love this canto over the course of these episodes as we return to Walking with Dante. We're at lines 1 through 24 of Canto 6. You can find these lines on my website, markscarborough.com, or walkingwithdante.com. You can drop a comment. You can print off my translation. You can engage in further dialogue about this episode with me if you'd like. This is going to get a little complicated. We've got some tedious stuff to get through and then some truly interpretive difficulties to get through in this passage. So without any further ado, let's just get to it. Lines 1 through 24 of Canto 6 of Purgatorio. When a game of dice is finished, the one who lost is left behind all miserable, repeating every turn of the game and getting schooled by his sorrow. Meanwhile, the others set off with the guy who won. This guy goes in front, another grabs him from behind, and yet another beside him tries to get his attention. The winner doesn't stop. He does listen to this one and that. Those to whom he extends his hand don't press so close anymore, so he has some defense against the crowd. That's how I was in that pressing throng, turning my face first to this one, then to another, all to make my promises and thus be free of them. Among them was the Arentine who met his death at the hands of the fierce Gino di Taco, and the other who drowned as he raced away from the chase. And with his hands stretched out in a plea was Frederico Novello, as well as the guy from Pisa, who made the good Marzucco appear quite strong. I saw Count Orso, as well as that soul divided from his body because of spite and envy, as he said, and not because of any crime he'd committed. I mean Pierre de la Brosse. And I pray she takes care of that lady of Brabant while she's still over there among the living so that she doesn't find herself in a much worse flock. That's the crowd pressing in on the Pilgrim Dante and Virgil after they have already heard three stories in Canto 5 of those who died violent deaths and therefore made it into purgatory just at the last second, let's say, as in one case, with Mary on their lips. If you remember those three stories from Jacopo del Casero, from Buon Conte de Montefeltro, and from La Pia, we had an extended narrative from them. And now we get more, six more people. Here's what I'd like to do in this episode of the podcast. I'd like to start off with the Canto 6 as a whole and its position inside of Purgatorio. And then I'd like to talk through this list of people. This is the tedious stuff, kind of who are these people? And I'm going to quickly go through them. <laughs> you know me, relatively quickly go through them so that we can rehearse who they are and get on to the tough stuff 
which is the metaphor that opens the sixth canto. So let's get started. I said I wanted to talk about Canto 6 of Purgatorio as a whole, and I've already told you it is a Canto I dislike. If you remember, in our last episode before we took a break, we had the read-through of Cantos 6 through 8. And if you remember, you don't have to, but if you do, you might remember that this Canto includes a narrative opening and then a long invective against Italy and specifically then at the end against Florence. And it gets more and more vicious, this invective, as it rolls along. And I've always disliked Canto Six because of that invective. I've always felt as if it was ham-handedly sewed onto the back of this canto. I want to try to work on that over the course of these podcasts, because as I have worked with Canto Six, I realize it is more incredibly structured than I thought. There are 75 lines of narrative and then 76 lines of invective out of the 151 total lines of this canto. For something so perfectly divided, there has to be more of a rationale. I'm reminded here of the 14th canto of Inferno and the way we work through that. That's the canto where we found Capaneus stretched out on the sands, cursing God and... (laughs) claiming that nothing could ever bend him, although he was stretched out on the burning sands of the blasphemers. If you remember, that canto then moves out to the old man of Crete, and we had this whole discussion of how the rivers of hell are formed through the weeping statue in the mountain of Crete, and I worked very hard at sewing that canto together, at taking the first half of material and figuring out how it related to the old man of Crete. So I want to do the same thing here. I want to try to figure out how does the narrative opening of this canto fit with the invective that comes later. In order to do that, we're going to do some tedious stuff up first. The passage that I read you includes this list of six people who press on the Pilgrim Dante and Virgil. We've already had three stories from the crowd of people who died violently, as I already told you, Jacopo del Casaro, Buonconte da Montefeltro, and La Pia. But now we have many more. We have three named and three offered paraphrastically. That is, we walk around them without actually giving their names. So let's go through them and talk about who they are briefly. So I'm going to start down into the passage at line 16 and continuing out to 24. I'm just going to read it and explain who commentators think these people are. It starts out, among them was the Arentine who met his death at the hands of Gino Taco. Most commentators identify this person as Benincasa da Latarina. He was a judge and assessor of Siena, and as a judge, he sentenced Gino's brother or uncle. It's unclear in the commentary. Commentators from around Dante's time and 100, 200 years afterwards identify brother or 
uncle of this Gino di Tacco. Anyway, he sentenced him to death. Then this figure, Benin Casa da Latarina, moved to Rome and became, uh, we might say, a bookkeeper in the papal treasury, an auditor in the papal treasury. There, he was apparently murdered by Gino di Tacco. In fact, some of the commentators claim if this is indeed Benin Casa, that he was murdered during a session of the papal court right in front of Pope Boniface VIII. This is all suppositional. We do know who Gino di Tacco is. He was a Sienese nobleman who was exiled both from Siena and from his family, and he in his own day became a rather famous highwayman, a highway robber. Maybe this is Benin Casa da Latarina, but again, I just want to put a little doubt here. We're having to rely on the commentary yet for these details. And Dante is walking paraphrastically around what's going on here. And it continues. It says, so here's this Arentine who met his death at the hands of the fierce Gino di Tacco and the other who drowned as he raced away from the chase. Most commentators identify this as Guccio de Tarlati. And after that, it all gets terribly murky. If it is Guccio de Tarlati, he was an Arentine Ghibelline. He may have been fighting the Guelphs, who had been banished from Arezzo, and he may have been done in by those Arezzo or Arentine Guelphs. He may have drowned in the Arno either in pursuit of those Guelphs or being pursued by them. You should just know that the Florentine there is a little ambiguous. The other who drowned as he raced away in Caccia can mean either it's in the chase. It can mean either he was being chased or he was the one doing the chasing. So it's a little unclear. And again, we're having to rely on the commentariat to know exactly who this is. This one drowned as he raced away from the chase is even vaguer and what I want to shadowier than the one before the Arentine who met his death at the hands of the fierce Gino di Tacco. Both of these figures are rather obscure to us. We have to kind of figure it out. We have to rely on the commentariat. But then suddenly it opens out with his hand stretched out in a plea was Frederico Novello. All right. Now we have a name. In fact, this is somebody who did indeed come to the aid of the Ghibelline Arentines, the Arezzo Ghibellines. And he may, in fact, have been helping the Tarlati, the same people who this Guccio de Tarlati came from, this one who raced away with the chase. Frederico Novello is not well known in the historical record, but we do have a name from Dante. And then it goes on and it gets murky again, as well as the guy from Pisa who made the good Marzucco appear quite strong. Who is this? This is terribly murky, the guy from Pizza. What we can say is this is probably the son of Marzucco dei Scornigiani. He was a Pisan judge who lost power to the famed Count 
Ugolino and Archbishop Ruggieri. Remember them? Chewing? <laughs> well, Ugolino chewing on Ruggieri down on the ice sheet of Cocytus? This guy, Matsuko, is probably the figure that they replaced in peace and power. When they replaced Marzuko, his son did in fact die in 1287, Marzuko's son, and that would have been under Ugolino's rule. Whether Ugolino actually signed the death warrant is unclear. And what else is unclear is how exactly did the good Marzuko appear strong. That is mostly lost to historical Merck. After Marzuko was thrown out of power, he did take orders. How he actually appeared strong, every commentator has a different story on this, about forgiving Ugolino, about demanding to see his son's body, about praying and forgiving Ugolino and Ruggieri. Everybody's got stories that surround this. Let's just face it and say we are looking back 700 years. Things are vague. I want things to be much clearer. They're not. The passage goes on. I saw Count Orso now. It's clear again. This is Count Orso de Alberti, who was murdered by his cousin, Count Alberto da Mangona, about 1286. This is somebody else who has an infernal reference. This guy was murdered by his cousin, and their fathers we've already seen in Caina out on the ice sheet of Cocytus at Inferno 32, lines 40 through 60. We saw Alessandro and Napoleone dei Alberti chest-to-chest, butting heads, being very aggressive with each other, frozen in the ice sheet. I guess not as aggressive as Ugolino and Ruggieri. But again, another pairing from hell. Notice how this has come up twice with pairings from hell in this passage. It continues in clarity, as well as the soul divided from his body because of the spite and envy, as he said, and not because of any crime he'd committed. I mean, Pierre de la Brosse. Let me just explain who this is. This is the only non-Italian in the group. He is the Chamberlain of Philip III of France, that is, Philip the Bold. He accused the Queen, Marie of Brabant, that's a region in modern Belgium, Marie of Brabant. He accused her, she was Philip's second wife, of poisoning the son by Philip's first wife, Isabella of Aragorn, so that her son could ascend the throne. And her son did ascend the throne, Philip the Fair. So the Chamberlain accused her of this. He was tried, convicted, and hanged for treason, for court intrigue. And thus the passage ends, I pray she takes care of that lady of Brabant, that would be Marie, while she's still over there, what the implication is over there among the living, so that she doesn't find herself in a much worse flock. In other words, so that she doesn't go to hell. Interestingly, and here's a little interesting side point, Marie of Brabant lived longer than the Inferno when Purgatorio were being written. Did she actually ever see this warning that if she didn't behave, she was going to end up in hell? I don't know. It's an interesting little historical question. Did she ever hear Dante Warner that she's in danger of hell itself? Where she would end up in hell? Not sure. <laughs> so many places we could place her. But she had 
poor Pierre de la Brosse hanged. Okay, that's the tedious bit of these six figures. Three of them murky and three of them by name. Let's turn to why this is going on. It's a grand question. Why this is going on? Why does Dante feel the need to hide three of them and be so clear with three others? Why do we move back and forth from clarity to opacity? Dante is certainly living on the run at the, what I want to say, the bequest of Ghibelline warlords. He is under the patronage of Ghibelline warlords. Is he protecting them? Is that why he's using some paraphrastic phrasing here? Maybe. What we can say is that what we're seeing here is court intrigue and political struggles both across Italy and across France. And this is important. And let me just stop here for a moment. Court culture is only being codified in Dante's day. Just think about this. Not very long before Dante writes, the king of France is basically no better than the mayor of Paris. The dukes of Burgundy, Provence, these are all much more powerful places than the king of France. And court life is slowly codifying into a structure that will allow even the king of France to become more than simply, this being a little snotty, the mayor of Paris. So what we're seeing in Dante's day is the formalization of bureaucratic court proceedings, and this is going to lead to unbelievable strife. And we should see this passage as both a what a, a further leading of the kind of court strife that is besetting Italy and France, and also part of the struggle to establish, in fact, a political order in places where the political order hasn't necessarily been clear. It's becoming clear in Dante's day. But that clarity is at the cost of people's lives. We should also note that the poet Dante seems to be signaling us. Remember, we had three stories from Jacopo del Casaro, Bonconte da Montefeltro, and La Pia. And now we have these six other figures. It's almost as if the poet is winking at us and saying, I mean, there's a lot more I could say. I can have any one of these step up and also give a monologue as if to say, hey, I've given you three stories, but shoot, there are so many more I could give you, so many more people pressing on the pilgrim, and each one of these could have a very interesting monologue. I think there might be a way that the poet is signaling us that the material he has at hand to work with, the four, those who died violently, is so enormous that he's made a selection, which means we should go back and look at Jacopo and Buonconte and La Pia even more closely than we did, because he's basically signaling us those are the ones I pulled out for storytelling, to allow them to have a monologue. I had so many more I could have worked with, and I chose those three. It sends us back to Cato 5. But we're not going to go back to <laughs> We don't have that much time. We're going to go on here in Canto 6, and we're going to turn from this tedious rehearsal of who these people are back to the front of the passage, and we're going to open with that metaphor of the game of dice. This is the most difficult part 
of this passage. So let me go back to line one. When a game of dice is finished, let's just talk about what he's talking about here. He's talking about Zara, which is an Arabic game of dice. It's played with three dice, and you throw them much like modern-day craps, which is, of course, played with two dice. You throw them, and the bad numbers you want to avoid are 3, 4, 17, and 18. Unless you call those numbers out, throwing a 3, 4, a 17, or an 18 will disqualify you. There are two things that are of interest here. One, it's an Arabic game. This begins a little germinal seed of Arabic thinking, philosophy, and culture, which will grow stronger and stronger over the course of Purgatorio. I know, the most Christian of all poems. It's going to keep turning back to Arabic culture, and this is one of the first in Purgatorio, germinal seeds. Second, the bad numbers, 3, 4, 17, and 18. Guess what? And this is what's so fascinating. The cantos, 3, 4, 17, and 18 of Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso are the tough ones. They're the ones. They're the ones that are most problematic. The third, let me rehearse this for you. The third canto of Inferno, that's those neutrals. Remember the people who didn't make a choice and so they're not really in hell? The fourth canto of Inferno, well, that's Limbo, which is really tough since it's really not hell, but it is the first circle of hell, but it's got a nice fountain and green grass and all the nice people standing around. And then if we push it up into Purgatorio, the third canto of Purgatorio, well, that was the excommunicated. That told us that the church's excommunication does not ultimately determine your soul's fate, which means the church doesn't have the final say. Whoa, that's tough. And the fourth canto of Purgatorio, that's Balakwa. The humor of the lazy you just don't want to want to climb this mountain. And if we just push this out, we haven't gotten this far, of course, in Purgatorio. But the 17th and 18th cantos of Inferno, those are the Garion cantos, where Dante meets the beast of fraud and swears on his own book that when he saw this beast of fraud... <laughs> He was not being fraudulent, but that his book is true. It's that incredibly weird meta moment. And then 18 is also tough because these are the flatterers and the seducers. And given that Dante was a lyric poet of troubadour-like love and that his relationship with Beatrice still has the aroma of troubadour love about it, oh, those flatterers and seducers are really problematic down in hell. We're going to see this again. Again, when we get to the 17th and 18th cantos of Purgatorio and the 3rd and 4th cantos, trust me, of Paradiso. And oh my gosh, the 17th and 18th cantos of Paradiso. These numbers indicate something difficult. In the game, bad. But in comedy, they're really troubling cantos. Just look at 3 and 4. The excommunicated in Palacqua and Purgatorio, the neutrals and limbo in Inferno. These are extra 
theological concerns. These are not theological concerns that the church would approve of, but all of these are created by Dante's own philosophy of the will, which leads him to places that the church would not approve of. There's no such thing as being a neutral in traditional Christian doctrine. There's no way that limbo includes Greek philosophers in traditional Christian doctrine. There is no call in traditional church doctrine that the church's pronouncements of excommunication are not final, and there is no way that the church would approve of a lazy figure like Balakwa saying, well, I just don't want to. The drive to God is so great that's making it a bit of humor Mm, It's stepping on the church's toes. All we can say is this game of dice here is loaded. We can push it and push it in the text, but it starts off our canto, and it's important we notice it. Now let's look at what it says. When a game of dice is finished, the one who lost is left behind all miserable, repeating every turn of the game and getting schooled by his sorrow. Meanwhile, the others set off with the guy who won. This guy goes in front, another grabs him from behind, and yet another beside him tries to get his attention. This is clearly the pilgrim. He's the winner. Dante wins, and so everybody is pressing against him. The winner doesn't stop. Virgil told Dante not to stop. The winner doesn't stop. He does listen to this one and that. Those to whom he extends his hand don't press so close anymore, so he has some defense against the crowd. So was I in that pressing throng. And it's explicit. The winner of the game of dice is Dante. But who's the loser? According to Robert Hollander, it was not until 1989 that Margarita Frankel decided or came to the conclusion, and it's a brilliant conclusion, that the loser is Virgil. In fact, in this passage, the loser is left behind all miserable, repeating every turn of the game and getting schooled by his sorrow. How is Virgil the loser? First of all, let me back up and say, Hollander claims that the rosy view of Virgil over the 700 years of commentary, the rosy view of Virgil as the allegory of reason has suppressed the interpretation that naturally he's the loser. But how is he the loser? If you remember back to Canto 5, Virgil is the one who reprimands the pilgrim for looking back at Balakwa and his fellow lazy souls and noticing that they were pointing at him. And Virgil says, you know what? You shouldn't watch when people point at you. You should just continue to climb the mountain. And the pilgrim Dante was ashamed. And then the crowd of those who died violently comes rushing up to Dante to know who this guy is who casts a shadow. And Virgil very proudly steps in front of them at lines 31 through 36 of Canto 5 and says, oh, you know, this guy, he's still in the true flesh. But you notice that nobody pays any attention to Virgil, despite the fact that Virgil insinuates himself between the pilgrim and the crowd rushing up, no one pays any attention to him. And thus, in the game, Virgil's the loser. And in fact, Virgil is even more of a loser. It's setting it up for the passage ahead of us, but you have to wait for the next episode of this podcast to get to that moment when Virgil is the loser for sure. How then is Dante the winner? 
Well, he's the winner because he's noticed, because they want him, because they want to get near him. Just think of the difference between this and Inferno. In Inferno, some people, like Brunetta Latini, wanted to get close to the pilgrim. But the farther down in Inferno we went, the less people wanted to be associated with Dante the pilgrim. They wanted to get away from him. Or like Guido de Montefeltro, they said, well, you know, you're never going to get back up to the land of the living, so I might as well tell you my story. Notice how Dante's role is shifting, how people are excited to see him. I can't even say that Francesca was excited to see the pilgrim, but Dante is becoming better known. He's almost becoming a bit of a celebrity. Keep that in your brain. I want to talk about that as we move forward in Canto 6. And we will indeed, in future episodes, move forward in Canto 6. I'm not going to reread it here at this stage. I'm going to save the rereading of Canto 6 until we get through the first 75 lines because they do form a narrative unit. So, let us get on to the next passage in the next episode of Walking with Dante. I look forward to seeing you then. I'm Mark Scarborough, and let us keep on the way. Hey there, if you've made it out to the back of this podcast, let me just say that I would like to ask for a little help. As you may know, this podcast has been on the air now for over three years, and I never thought it would last this long. I intended to walk through comedy, but I didn't really actually believe that this would all happen. It's rather overwhelmed my life, and I have turned down sponsor offers for the podcast because I want it to be exactly what I want it to be without anyone telling me what to do. I want notes from producers. So given that... I'm asking for help. There's a PayPal link in both the podcast player and in the show notes. You can find that on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. That link will take you again to a PayPal account and you can donate to keep this podcast working. I would say that a buck, a dollar, a Canadian dollar, a euro, a pound per episode that you've enjoyed. That would be terrific. Listen, 50 cents, half a quid per episode that you've enjoyed. That would be terrific. A small donation helps me then pay the royalties for the music, the royalties for the sound effects. It helps me pay my streaming service fees, my hosting service fees, my editing fees. It helps in all of those ways, in all of the ways that this podcast has overwhelmed me. Listen, if you don't do this, no worries. This podcast will continue on as my passion project. But I just thought that now that we're so far in, and you may be just starting out the journey, but I'd still like to ask you for help. Thanks so much. And if not, no worries. We're going to still walk with Dante.